Uh, I'm glad to be here every night this week. Uh, I was grateful to be asked. I come from a, a town, uh, Manhattan, the very center of New York City, where uh, people think of Christianity pretty much the way people think about it in Oxford. Uh, it's understood that the natural and the social sciences have essentially made God and religion unnecessary, that it's unnecessary for, uh, uh, well, understanding the world. God and religion is unnecessary for having moral ideals. God and religion is unnecessary for uh, living life well. And therefore, history, in a sense, has moved on. And uh, Christianity, in a sense, is a spent force. That's how it's seen there. That's pretty much how it's seen here. The only problem is if you actually lift up your eyes and look at the way life is being lived around the world, the, the problem with that idea is that Christianity isn't acting like a spent force. Uh, we could start with the numbers. The, uh, if you take a look at Korea, in the 20th century, Korea went from about 1% Christian to about 40% Christian in 100 years. Uh, if you look at China, something like that's beginning to happen in China, which of course is massively bigger. Uh, but there's, it's growing explosively in China. In Africa, at the beginning of the 20th century, 9% Christian. At the end of the 20th century, 50%. Just one example is in 1955, there were 16 million Catholics in Africa. And today, there's 170 million Catholics in Africa. And that's not even the biggest uh, Christian body. And I, I don't, even though the numbers are very impressive, I'm not really thinking just about the numbers. I'm thinking of the diversity of the places where Christianity is growing explosively. Uh, one of the, uh, the secularization thesis, which when I was young was uh, just considered uh, just absolutely true, that is that the more technologically advanced, the more industrialized uh, a society gets, the more, uh, the, the more secular it gets and the less religious it gets. The problem, of course, is that as China is getting more technologically advanced, it's not getting more secular. In fact, if I'm in a really bad mood, and I can be, uh, if somebody says to me, you know, the world's getting more secular, I say, no, uh, some white people are getting more secular, but the rest of the world actually isn't getting more secular. And white people, by the way, are shrinking as a percentage of the population of the world. Now, what has that got to do with you? Though a few of you look white. What has this got to do with you? Uh, a lot, because if you're here to try to understand the world as it is, if you're an Oxford student, don't you want to know what the world's really like? Don't you want to live in the real world, not just the world that you'd like to believe in, but the real world? In, in that case, you need to understand this movement. You need to understand the fact that the world actually largely is not becoming more secular as it gets more technically, technologically advanced. And, and um, there's a tendency, I think, for people in Manhattan and Oxford to say when they, when they actually hear the statistics, at first they're kind of surprised and they realize the secularization thesis is perhaps uh, obsolete, and yet they say, well, that's, Christianity and religion is growing in less developed countries. Boy, if that isn't a Western imperialistic attitude, and if you would like to be absolutely free of that Western imperialism, stop those thoughts and actually say, I'd like to find out from the people, instead of imposing my idea on them, I'd like to find out from them what is the reason why uh, so many people are turning in this way, even in our uh, technologically advanced age. And I'm going to try to represent them to you. And in fact, I, I, I have some confidence that I will be able to do that. There is a remarkable amount of, 
at least the things I'm going to talk to you about, there's a remarkable amount of consensus across the world about some things when it comes to Christianity, even though there's plenty of diversity in the Christian movement. And here's what I think most people would say who are flooding into Christianity across the world. They would say everyone needs meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope. Meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope. And they would say, not only does Christianity explain why those are, those are needs, why we can't live without them, not only does Christianity explain why we have those deep needs that we just can't avoid, but it also supplies those needs arguably better than any other view of life, including the secular view. That's what they'd say. And I would like to present that to you this week, one night each, you know, meaning tonight, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope. And, of course, it's not just an intellectual exercise. I do think you just simply need to know a major part of, of the future. This is the future. If you go to London or New York, you can see it with your own eyes that the future of the world is uh, maybe, maybe there's certain parts will get more secular, but many other parts will not. The future of the world is a polarized world when it comes to religion, not a religionless future. And if you want to understand that world, I think you'll, if you come out here, I think you'll understand it better. But of course, I want you to consider it personally, too, because these are human needs. These are your needs. You need meaning and satisfaction and freedom and identity and hope. And maybe you will find that this not only explains, Christianity not only explains it extremely well, but offers maybe unparalleled resources to meet those needs. So what I'm going to do each night is I'm going to read you a text from the Bible. I'm going to try to uncover... Uh, the, the particular theme for that night from that text. I, when I read you this text, I will not be, you might say, uh, unpacking it fully. I'm going to choose some themes from the text and show how those themes shed light on our, our topic. But what I'm going to read you for tonight, when we're going to be looking at the idea of meaning in life, is John chapter 1, the first five verses, uh, and then uh, three verses later on, verses... Uh, 14 to 17. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and 14 to 17. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not comprehended it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This passage uh, indicates three things. That there's a meaning in life that is discovered. There's a meaning in life that is created. And there's a meaning in life who discovers us. There's a meaning in life that's discovered, a meaning in life that's created, and a meaning in life who discovers us. First, there's a meaning in life that's create. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> that's discovered. In the most obvious thing, if you've never heard even this text read before, the most obvious thing about it is that John is talking about something called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He uses the word, Word, four times in the text, in the passage. And, of course, since he wrote in Greek, he was using a Greek word. 
And that Greek word was the word logos. And John deliberately uses a word that had an enormous amount of cultural and philosophical freight at the time. Because the ancient Greek philosophers had talked about a logos, and they meant by the logos a spiritual cosmic order or structure behind the material universe. So that if you could discern what the logos was, you would understand the meaning or the reason, logos, the reason for existence, the reason for life, the reason for the universe. Now, to get the gist of it, just imagine this. Uh, I, I, I'm going to have, because I'm American, every, you know, Americans and, and English people are, are united by, uh, divided by a common language. And we under, the big words we all believe in, but it's, the, it's the words like truck or lorry or lift or elevator. These are the things that divide us and why we can't get along as well as we could otherwise. And uh, I, I don't, do you, do you say space heater? Room heater? You know, the little heater, it's in our hotel room in case the central heating isn't working very well and you plug it in. What do you call that? A heater. <laughs> Americans are just, you know, we're just too, we overly complexify things. All right. We call it a room heater or a space heater. So now let's just say you've plugged your space heater in and you're in the bathtub and you say, you know, the, the water isn't hot enough. I'd like to heat my water my bath water with this, with this heater, and you put the heater in, what will happen? You will die. <laughs> and you will die because it's not designed to heat bath water. In fact, if you plug it into the wrong power source, it might, uh, you might burn down your flat. And uh, you better read the directions. And the directions actually are an expression of the logos of the heater. That is, the people who design the heater design it to work in certain ways, uh, there's a purpose, there's a reason for the heater's existence, and if you don't align your use of it with the designer's purpose for it, you will destroy yourself, electrocute yourself, burn down your flat, whatever. And so the Greek philosopher said, well, what if there's a logos, there is a logos, they believe, to the universe itself? And what that means is if we could discern it, and we live in accordance with it, if we could align ourselves with it, then finally we would, be, we'd, we would be living along the grain of the universe, as it were. We would be living in a way that, uh, that uh, as life was meant to be lived. And if we didn't, if we, if we didn't align ourselves with the meaning of life as far as the, this cosmic order behind the universe, if we didn't uh, live according to that, we'd in a sense burn our, our life down. And so though the different philosophy, I mean, obviously every school, the the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Neoplatonists, Plotinus, Aristotle, they all had different takes on it, but they all believed there was a sense, there, was, there were moral norms, there were moral absolutes, there was a kind of cosmic spiritual order behind the material universe, and you had to discover that. It was objective meaning, it was out there. You didn't make it up, you had to discover it, and you had to align your life with it. And John is saying, the Gospel writer John, Christian writer, is saying, that's right, there is a Logos. There is a spiritual order to the universe that you must align your life with. That's the first thing we see from the text. The second thing that the text indicates, and it's more of a hint, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a delicious hint, is in verse 5 where it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. Now the word light in the Bible is a metaphor uh, for truth, very common metaphor for truth. And what we're being told here is the truth comes into the world, but the world doesn't comprehend it. Now, some translations will say the world has not understood it. 
And sometimes it says the world has not overcome it. And uh, a friend of mine who's a New Testament scholar, Don Carson, actually says that this Greek word that's, that John uses here, he says, is a, a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Because what it's getting across is the fact that we have a deeply ambivalent attitude toward truth. There's a sense in which we want truth, and on the other hand, we don't like it being imposed on us. And because of that, we live in an era that I don't think John could have probably even imagined, in which what we actually have is uh, we, have a, uh, we live in an era, a, a culture, Western culture, in which this deeply ambivalent attitude toward truth is very much in play. Because on the one hand, uh, I'm going to read you two perfectly good examples of secular uh, thinkers who say there is and there is not meaning in life. So, for example, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who was a paleontologist at uh, Harvard and a public intellectual, uh, some years ago, actually uh, in 1988, uh, Life magazine, an American magazine, asked a, a group of different thinkers, um, uh, what's the meaning of life? And uh, Stephen Jay Gould said this, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth, we're here because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating. We must construct these answers for ourselves. And then Jerry Coyne, more recently, he's a professor of biology at uh, University of Chicago, and like uh, Stephen Jay Gould would be, he called himself an atheist, uh, Jerry Coyne put it like this. He says, the cosmos doesn't have one iota of evidence for a purpose or for a god. So secularists don't, give, uh, don't, don't see a universe without apparent purpose. Pardon me. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize that we must forget, we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purposes and they're real. Now that I'm not having to read my notes, I can tell you what he just said. In both cases, they said there is no purpose of life. I mean, because we're just here. No one made us. There's no logos. There's no objective out there, meaning in life that we have to align ourselves with. There's no meaning in life we discover because we were not made for a purpose. We're not like the heater. We're just here. And yet, they both say, but you, can, you still need to have purpose in life. And you can create that purpose. You can decide what you want to live for. You want to live to be a good parent for your children. You want to live to fight hunger in Africa. You decide what the uh, purpose is. In fact, Stephen Jay Gould says, it's liberating. There's no purpose that you have to discover because we're not here for any purpose. In a sense, there's no purpose to human life. But there could be purpose to your life, and you create it. Isn't that liberating? There's the ambivalence, see. There is no truth, and yet we need something to live for. There is no meaning in life, and yet you need to have your own meaning in life. There are some people who've said, no, wait a minute, let's get over this. Uh, uh, if you're a secular person and you realize that there's, we're not created, we're not here for any particular reason, get over the idea of needing, needing meaning in life. Um, you shouldn't need meaning in life, but you do. Uh, a recent book in, in the States, which is a big bestseller, uh, is called uh, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. He teaches medicine at uh, Harvard Med School, and he's also a, a working surgeon in Boston. And in there, he tells a story about uh, a man who was the director of a nursing home in upstate New York. 
And he saw his nursing home patients withering and dying. dying. These were aging patients, old patients. And he came up with an idea. And he did an end run around the local health inspectors. And he brought in pets, dogs, cats, parrots, parakeets. He brought in uh, uh, plants, all sorts of exotic plants, created a vegetable garden, created a flower garden, uh, didn't ask anybody's permission, on every floor, so that all the residents suddenly had a garden to attend uh, to, or, 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 or a parrot to feed, or a dog or a cat to feed. And over the next couple of years, you should have seen what de annual <laughs> deaths went down 20%, uh, psychotropic drug prescriptions went down 50%, 38%. It was a triumph. Why? And he, what he says is, people need meaning in life. And what does that mean? Feeding a pet. Just to have, and here's how he defined it, meaning in life is I've got a purpose and I make a difference. Something I do lives beyond my life. I have a purpose and it makes a difference. So, it, so if I do anything that I know lives on beyond me, I feel like I've got a purpose. And if I don't have a purpose, I die. So we need meaning in life. But what we're being told in our culture, certainly in a secular culture, is there's no discovered meaning, objective meaning out there that I've got to align myself with. There's only created meaning. There's only meaning that I decide for myself. And I make a purpose, and it might be feeding a pet. It might be raising a child. It might be uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, do something for public justice in the, in the world today. But it's going to live on beyond me. It's going to make a difference, because if I'm superfluous, if nothing I do really matters and nothing I do makes any difference, then I have no meaning in life. And you've got to live with meaning in life. So we need meaning in life. And secular people said, well, you can have meaning in life. You create it. You create it. Question. Is it true that if there's no God and there's no meaning in life for the human race, can you still have meaning in life? Even without belief in God, or anything beyond this world and this life, can you have meaning in life? And my answer to you is yes and no. But a bigger no than a yes. I hope I'm being fair, and you probably may not, but okay, we're here. It's Oxford. You can ask questions. I can give you answers. We can go back and forth. But I'd like to say, I think if you say, I'm a secular person. I don't have believe in God. I don't believe I'm here for a purpose, but I can have meaning in life. My answer to you is yes. And no. I already gave you the yes. The yes is <laughs> there's empirical uh, proof that if even if you have something more important than just yourself, something more important than just clothing yourself and feeding yourself, something else you're living for, some other cause that maybe will outlive you, something you're doing for someone else besides yourself, meaning in life, and you, and you live, and that nursing home is a perfect example of it. But here's, the, here's three reasons why I'm going to press you on this. Three reasons why I think that if you don't believe in God, or you don't believe in anything beyond this world or after this life, that your meaning in life is far less rational, far less durable, and far less morally and social, socially useful. Far less rational, far less durable, and far less um, morally and socially useful. Give me five minutes to unpack that, all right? First of all, far less rational. I know that sounds strange for a Christian to say to people who out there who might be secular that I do think Christianity is much more rational when it comes to meaning in life. What do I mean? Well, let me give you a couple more quotes, and let's see if I can read them. Thomas Nagel, NYU professor, very prominent guy, puts it like this in his little book, A Very Short History 
a very short intro to philosophy, and he has a chapter called The Meaning of Life, and in there he says this, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed, and after you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. If one's life is supposed to have a point as part of something larger, it's always possible to ask, what's the point of that? C.S. Lewis wrote this, if nature is all that exists, in other words, if there's no God and no life of some other sort somewhere outside of nature, then all stories will end in the same way, in a universe from which all life is banished without the possibility of return. If civilization will if civilization is all there is, human civilization, there's no afterlife, no God, no supernatural. If civilization is all there is, then civilization will have been an accidental flicker. There will be no one even to remember it. No doubt atomic bombs may cut short its duration on this present planet. Uh, but the whole thing, even if human civilization lasted for millions of years, will be so infinitesimally short in relation to the oceans of dead time which precede and follow it that I cannot feel excited about its curtailment. And uh, French philosopher Luc Ferry uh, has a section in his book uh, on a brief history of thought in which he does what Tom Nagel says, you can always ask, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in anything beyond this world, you can always ask the question, uh, what's the point of that? He, he calls it les sens du sens. And here's what he means. He says, if you, uh, everything has to have a point, right? A purpose, a meaning. So why are you exercising? Well, the point of exercise is to keep my health good. What's the point of the health? So I can work. What's the point of work? So I can make money, so I can care for my family. What's, and what Luke Ferry says is, uh, sans du sans is, you can always say, what's the point of that? Until you get to a place where it's pointless. Why? Because here's in the end. If this life is all there is, and there is no God, and this world is all there is, in the end it will not matter whether you're a genocidal maniac or an altruist. It won't matter whether you fight hunger in Africa or some other poor place, or whether you're just incredibly cruel and greedy capitalist and you're just making money and you're starving the poor. It won't matter because in the end, not only will nothing you do make any difference, but eventually nobody will be around to remember what you've done, and eventually nobody will be around to remember that there is civilization. In the end, it makes no difference. And what Nagel and Ferry are being, they're just being consistent. They're being philosophers. They're simply saying, even if you say there's a point to this that I'm doing and it's a point to this, eventually it's pointless. You can always ask, what's the point of that? What's the point of that? And in the end, it's pointless. Now you say, well, yeah, they're philosophers. And they think like that. I'm not going to think like that. I'm going to say I'm, I'm, I'm raising a child or I'm working here. I don't want to have to think cosmically like that. Well, it might break in on you. And here's what, what I mean. Tolstoy, you know, in 1879, Tolstoy wrote his confession. And in the confession, he says, he talks about something that happened to him when he turned 50. He said he had a wife who loved him. He had, a great, he had good children. He had a large estate, which without much effort on my part improved and increased. He said I was respected. Uh, and then he came to the place where he said, I realized I could give no rational meaning to any single action in my life. How's that? He says, today or tomorrow, sickness and health, sickness and death will come. They had come already to many people that he loved. 
but it will come to me, and nothing will remain but stench and worms. He says, sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten, and I will not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can we fail to see this, he says. That's what's surprising. One can only live one while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it's all mere fraud or a stupid fraud. There's nothing either amusing or witty about it. My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will, become, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Now, here's what Tolstoy is saying. And if you're a Christian, and for argument's sake, will you imagine believing Christianity for a minute? Just imagine. And you're having a terrible day, or you're having a terrible month, you're having a terrible year. How do you deal with that? One of the ways to do it is to think out the implications of what you believe about the universe. If you really believe Christianity, you say, well, you know, there's a God who made me in love. And even though I failed him, he sent his son into the world to redeem me. And now because his spirit lives in me and he's promised someday to take me to be with him and someday even to renew the whole earth and, and, and there's the resurrection of the body and, and to create a new heavens and new earth. And that means that ultimately the worst that can happen to me right now, which is I die, would be the best thing that could happen to me. And even all these good outcomes are absolutely certain. And the best is yet to come. How does a Christian deal with trouble? By thinking, thinking, being rational thinking out the implications of what we believe about the universe. Tolstoy said that when he didn't believe there was anything outside of this world, the more he thought about the implications of his actual view of life, the sadder he got. And it kept breaking in on him. Now here's my only point, first of the three points, is if you really believe there is no discovered meaning in life, only created meaning in life, then if you really start to think globally, the fact that nothing you do is going to make any difference in the end. Well, of course you're going to be upset because you're thinking out the implications of your view of life. You're, uh, you're thinking out the implications of your worldview. Well, you don't have to think as much, but that's what I'm saying. It's not a very rational way to have meaning in life. It's less rational than discovered meaning. It's less rational. Secondly, it's less durable. What do I mean by that? Less durable? If you've created your meaning rather than discovered it and aligned with it, if you created your own meaning, then your meaning in life is some point in this life. There's something in this life that you said, I'm living for that, I'm living for my family, I'm living for this cause, I'm living for this political cause, or something like that. And that means that suffering, when it comes, can destroy your meaning in life, totally destroy it. If you're living for your pet, if you're living for your child, your pet dies, your child dies, you have no meaning in life left. But if you, if your meaning in life is actually something outside this world, if your meaning in life is to know God, to please God, to be with God, suffering can actually get you in that direction. It can actually enhance your meaning in life. It can get you closer to him. So Viktor Frankl, for example, uh, who was a uh, Jewish doctor who was put into the death camps uh, during World War II, and uh, he survived. And afterwards, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and in that book, he talked about the fact that he could see uh, under the terrible, horrendous uh, 
conditions of the death camps, uh, people reacted and responded in three ways. Some people just became evil. Some good people became evil. They started collaborating with the enemy. They, they just became bad. Some people just lost hope. They just sometimes literally curled up in a ball and died. But he says some people stayed noble, brave, self-sacrificing. And when he got out, he tried to figure out what the difference was. And he decided it had all to do with what their meaning in life was. He says, if you have a meaning in life that the death camp can take away from you, and think about that, if your meaning in life is your career, or money, or your family, or some political cause, or your looks, if your meaning in life is anything that a death camp can take away from you, and any created meaning is, then you either become evil or you shrivel up and die. He discovered that the people who uh, were able to keep with it generally were people who had a meaning in life that was some transcendent reference point. In some cases, it was traditional religion, and he saw a lot of uh, Jewish people in the camp actually go back to traditional religion and prayers. But he even remember one guy who simply said, my wife's in heaven because she's dead, and she's looking down at me, and I want to make her proud of me, and that's my meaning in life. And even that transcendent reference point made it possible for him to survive death camps. Could you? I don't believe any created meaning in life, something that you just decide is there, because there's nothing beyond this world, is durable. And anthropologists will say Western societies are the worst societies in the history of the world at preparing people for, for suffering and death. Because created meaning is not only less rational, it's less durable. Lastly, it's way, way, way less useful for, uh, I said morally and, and uh, socially useful, what do I mean by that? Uh, some years ago in the Chronicle of Higher Education, an American uh, paper for, uh, it's a periodical actually for educators, and in the Chronicle there was a, an article by a woman who was an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist at a college in Rhode Island, I think, and she was doing a lot of studies of uh, certain cultures in Africa. And one of the problems that she had was that the cultures, very, she found the cultures very oppressive to women. And she began to push back and question uh, how uh, those cultures treated women. And she talked to some of the leaders in that culture. And, and she suddenly realized she was in trouble. She says, and she writes this uh, in the article. She wrote it. She said, as a secular person, I believe there are no mind-independent values. And by that, she meant, I don't believe there really are any moral absolutes. I don't believe there's something out there objectively that I've got to align with. I believe that all moral values are person-specific or culturally constructed, that every culture has its own values and no one culture is better than any other culture and there's no moral absolutes by which we decide this culture is good, this culture is bad. And yet when she showed up in these places and started saying, wait a minute, you need to treat women better, they looked at her and said, don't put your white Western values on us, all that egalitarian stuff. You know that every culture has its own values and you have no basis for saying that your culture is better than our culture. You have no basis for saying that uh, you know, your, your uh, moral truths are right and ours are not. And by the way, we just happen to think that these people need to be controlled. And she was incredibly frustrated. And here's the reason why. If there is no God, you can explain moral feeling. You have moral feelings, I have moral feelings. Maybe they're the result of evolutionary biology. And these feelings helped our ancestors survive. Maybe, these are, maybe this is a, our culture. If there's no God, there certainly can be moral feelings. And people can be very moral in their behavior.
But if there's no God, there's no basis for moral obligation. Moral obligation is saying, you need to stop doing that in spite of how you feel about it. Because as soon as you do that, here's what Friedrich Nietzsche would say, Nietzsche would come to you and say, oh, so you don't believe there's a God, and yet you believe in human rights and that we should care for the poor? He says, you're still being Christians and you just won't admit it. Because the fact of the matter is there is no moral obligation. There's a, a Russian philosopher that put Nietzsche's argument very well, uh, Solovyov, who said, man descended from apes, therefore let us love one another. What Nietzsche would say is that does not follow. If you got here through the strong eating the weak, if that's the natural order of things, how dare you say that it's wrong when the rest of us do it? And what that woman discovered is, yes, yeah, she had a meaning in life. She was working. She decided that she was going to work for this or work for that. But because she didn't believe in a logos, because she didn't believe in a, a discovered meaning, a meaning that she had to align with, she had no basis for saying to somebody else, you need to stop doing that. She had a meaning in life, but it was actually morally and socially useless less durable, and less rational. So if Christianity was true, if Christianity was true, what would the meaning in life be? Because up to now, and I'm, just, I'm only going to be brief on this, but up to now I have shown you that if you don't believe in God, uh, you, you have created meaning that I think that you're at a great disadvantage in many, many ways. But I haven't really talked to you that much about what uh, Christianity offers beyond uh, some other religion, and here's what I'll just say at the end. Uh, you remember how it said at the end of the text, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's three things that John is saying there that I would like to, uh, I'll tell you two now, and after we do, uh, listen, listen to uh, one student give an account of her spiritual journey and we do a question and answer, I'll come back and explain it. But here's the first. John says three things about the Logos. Number one is the Logos is a person. Do you realize how incredible that is? The Logos is a person. John is saying, yes, like the Greek philosophers, I believe there's a, there is a structure behind the universe that we need to get in touch with and we need to align ourselves with if we're going to be living along the grain of the universe. But it's not a set of abstract principles that you have to use your philosophical acumen to discern. It's a person. It's a person, Jesus Christ, and to have a personal relationship with him, that's how you get in touch with the universe. Do you realize how egalitarian that was? It was a bombshell in, in, in the history of, the human, of human thought. The idea that the, the logos is there, but a person. There's a meaning in life that has to be discovered. No, it's a meaning in life who's a person, and if I enter into a relationship with that person, I'm in connection with the meaning of the universe. That doesn't take us to philosopher to know anybody can do that. It's egalitarian. It's incredibly personal. It's not cold and abstract. Suddenly, the universe isn't a kind of impersonal thing. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the creation of a personal God. The Logos is a personal. Think of how radical that was. But secondly, the Logos actually comes to us. Uh, you know, maybe some of you have heard me, maybe heard me say this before, even. Uh, years ago, when Dorothy Sayers wrote her uh, Lord Peter Whimsey novels, uh, the first number of novels and stories, uh, he had no love interest. You know, he's an aristocratic uh, detective, and um, uh, about halfway through the, uh, uh, the, the Lord Peter Whimsey stories, suddenly a woman shows up. What's interesting is, as you, many of you know, Dorothy Sayers was one of the early uh, female 
graduates of Oxford, and she wrote detective fiction. And Harriet Vane shows up and falls in love with Peter Wimsey, and they get married. Harriet Vane was one of the first women uh, graduates of Oxford, according to the fictional narrative, and she wrote detective fiction. And some people say Dorothy Sayers looked into her created world and fell in love with her lonely hero and wrote herself into the story to save him. And as that's kind of sweet. I mean, Americans would have gone, aw, but you're British. <laughs> they would, they would have gone, aw, but you're British. But there's something way greater than that. According to John, that's exactly what happened. God creates us, we turn away from him, that's the biblical narrative, and God looks into the world he's created, sees we need salvation, and writes himself into the story. And when you have a meaning in life, not that you have to use all of your intellectual contemplative powers to somehow discern and never be sure whether you've got it right. Instead, if you have a meaning in life, who's a person who comes and discovers you. And that answers the problem. Remember what I said before, that we, 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 we're ambivalent, why? Because we want truth, but we don't want a truth that's imposed on us. We, we don't like the loss of our freedom. We don't want a truth that's imposed on us. But a love relationship changes that. When I was falling in love with my wife, I wanted her to love me, and I wanted, I wanted to change for her. And I would go to her, and I'd say, is there anything that you want me to change? And she had her list. <laughs> I remember one, one of the things on the early part of the list was, maybe I should, I am in England, so I'll be more delicate. Uh, maybe I should say matters of personal hygiene. And when she told me about it, these were the sort of things that my mother and father had talked to me about, and I had said, don't you dare tell me how to live my life. When Kathy said, this is what I'd like you to change, I said, okay. Because in a sense, she when you're falling in love with somebody, you want to please that person, and that's not, that's not meaning you create. It's something you discover. You want to please that person. That person says, these are things I want you to do. But to give them to the person you love doesn't feel like an imposition. It feels like life itself. Life itself. And see, that's what's so different about Christianity. The meaning of life isn't the Ten Commandments, though you should obey the Ten Commandments. The meaning of life isn't, isn't just, you know, hoping to please your wife so when you go to heaven she'll be proud of you. That's closer, frankly. <laughs> But this is talking about a person that comes into your life and says, know me, and you know you're, you're in touch with the universe, but do the things. There's norms, of course. There's things you're supposed to do if you're a Christian, but do it because you love me. Do it because of what I've done for you when I came to earth, went to the cross, and died for you. Yeah, you know, there's a, a hymn writer, 17th century uh, American hymn writer has got a Christmas carol, and one of the... One of the uh, verses goes like this. Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. Your God extended on the straw. That changed history and that'll change your life. The Logos is a person and a love relationship is the meaning with him is the meaning in life.